Thrive Leadership Podcast in three, two, cue music. This is the Thrive Leadership Podcast. It's a place to connect you to nationally acclaimed leaders, their insights and ideas on how to help you thrive in every area of your life. Your life. On today's episode, Margaret Feinberg. You see, a sheep is wired. It is created to respond to the voice of its shepherd. Just as you and I are wired and we are created to respond to the voice of God in our lives. Now your hosts, Brad Lominick and CJ Alvarado. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Thrive Leadership Podcast, where we want to create healthy leaders and thriving churches. I'm your host, Brad Lominick, along with my co-host, Mm-hmm. The man in the right chair, mm. not just on my right, but actually because he's correct, CJ Alvarado. <laughs> Brad, it's always good to see your face. It really is. And uh, wait, <laughs> 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 it really is good to see my face. I, that's one of those things. You were about that, to agree. Well, I was. You were like, yes, it yes, is good it to is. see my face. Yeah. Here's the reason why I paused on that. Okay. Because I've been thinking about. And by the way, Margaret Feinberg coming up in this episode. Yes. A great talk on uh, the sheep, on the message of the shepherd, some amazing stories of actually visiting a sheep farm. Yeah, farm. It's one of those that you need to listen in to really catch the glimpse. It's one of those things you only can learn. Like some of the insights only come when you're on a farm. Yeah. And being a rancher, as I am, right? I know a thing or two about the farm. But what I was going to say is that I've been thinking a lot recently about mirror leadership. Mm. So when you said, it's good to see your face, I was thinking like in the mirror, it is good to see my face because I'm reflecting and I'm actually living out what I'm seeing. Now, that's a little bit of meta. That is very meta. Here's the the theory that I'm working on around this whole mirror leadership idea is that as leaders, when we see something in our team that we don't like, it's typically because it's being reflected off of us. Ooh. So just set on that for a second. I mean, did yeah. one of my teammates email you? Yeah, they were. They, they told me. They said, "Hey, are you going to be recording today with CJ? Could you bring up the fact that he really has not been leading us well recently?" <laughs> Most of us, when we see something in our culture, on yeah. our team, in our organization, we get frustrated by it, and a lot of times that's a frustration of our own leadership yeah. because your team is a reflection, a reflection of you and you're a reflection of your team. But as the leader, you have so much more lumens, good way to say it, yeah. in terms of the power that you will then cast onto your team and then always is going to be true Yeah, that they're going to reflect back to you what you're pushing onto them. If we see something we don't necessarily like, it's not very natural to assume or associate that with our own leadership. Exactly. Eh? And when I think about the times of my own leadership being called into question Mm. or me seeing something, I would always think, gosh, they're actually doing what is frustrating to me. Yeah. And the reason they're doing that is because I'm modeling it. So just think about that one. That's good. Mirror leadership. That is really good. Meanwhile, CJ, back on the farm. Back on the farm. Margaret Feinberg, you are a friend and a fan as well as I am. She's a great communicator. She is a Bible teacher. She's an author, authored many books. In fact, Margaret was one of the early, what I would describe as the new wave of the young 20-something authors who came around late 90s, early 2000s, when things like Catalyst were starting, Relevant Magazine, and she really got connected to this idea that there was a new generation of church leaders, of Christians, believers who were bringing sort of Bible studies, but weren't necessarily working in a local church. She's written a lot about millennials, written a lot about the next generation. And in this talk she does, she talks a lot about bees and shepherds and sheep. Grass. Grass? (laughs) I I don't know. I was just going off the farm motif. Well, the cows. Cows. There you uh, go. Chickens. I'm a city boy. Horses. I mean, this is an interesting relationship here. The city guy with the farm guy. So I'm I'm just kind of guessing. I would describe myself more as a ranch guy than than a farm guy. Ranch guy. See? There you go. But Margaret does relate in this talk, you know, a lot of the things from scripture that we would find to be great storytelling Mm -hmm. in the gospels, analogies and things that Jesus used to illustrate a point. And she really hits on those. So if you're looking for a good new practical sermon, any of you who are teaching pastors, Margaret's probably going to give you some nuggets here that you can use. Oh yeah. She's honest. I love how she tells stories. So it makes the whole thing just really compelling. So I'm really excited for us to jump into this one. Yeah. Let's listen in. Margaret Feinberg from a past Thrive Conference. 
Well, I wanted to ask you guys a question. First of all, would it be okay if I took off my shoes? Is that all right? Is that one of these kind of conferences where... Because more and more, what I find is that the Spirit is saying to me, you be you and you be mine. And when I am most fully myself and most fully his, I am in the best possible place. What I wanted to do was share a little bit of a spiritual journey that I have been on over the course of the last 10 years. And it actually began almost a decade ago and culminated over the last 18 months. You see, 10 years ago, I was living in my home state of Colorado when I got a call from my aunt up in Sitka, Alaska, that my uncle had gone out scuba diving and when he came to the surface, he was dead and it just turned her world upside down, and she needed somebody to give her a hand with a bed and breakfast, and being one of the only people in the family with a flexible schedule, I volunteered to go up for several summers. And during those summers, I met some rather unforgettable individuals. One of them was one of the guests who came through the bed and breakfast, and her name was Lynn. And over hot, fresh berry scones and freshly brewed coffee, we talked about life when I randomly asked her what she did in her free time. And she said, I am a shepherdess. And I was like, oh, what? And she said, I'm a shepherdess. Like, you take care of sheep? Yeah. <laughs> in your backyard? Like, I'm trying to imagine, what does this look like? And she begins to describe how in her home outside of Portland, Oregon, she takes care of several dozen sheep. This is her pastime, her passion, what she loves to do. And as she is talking, I'm immediately having several spiritual questions flood my mind, but I so don't want to sound like one of those people. And so I'm trying to land the plane of conversation smoothly, and I'm like, well, sometimes I read this book called The Bible. And in it, there is this author named John. And in John chapter 10, he describes how God is like a shepherd and we're like his sheep. And just as a shepherd cries out to the sheep and the sheep come running, so too God will cry out to us and we have the opportunity to respond in obedience. Does that really happen when you're hanging out with your sheep? And she says, yes. And then she begins to describe the day-in, day-out care of her flock. And as she is talking, my spirit is just coming alive. Well, that morning conversation eventually came to an end, and she had to travel on to her next stop in her journey in Alaska. But before she left, she said, Margaret, you seem to be really interested about this whole topic of sheep and spirituality, and I've been collecting some magazine and newspaper articles on that very topic. Would you like me to send them to you? I said, that would be great. But I honestly thought that she would forget. Because how often do many of us make well-meaning promises and totally drop the ball? And yet three weeks later, an envelope arrived in the mail. And when I opened the manila file inside and began reading those articles, I began thinking, one day I am going to write about this. But that was nearly 10 years ago. Multiple moves, not only within the great state of Alaska, but also back to Colorado, where I can honestly say it is good to be back in America. <laughs> and the spring before last, I was going through one of my desk drawers, and as I did, I stumbled upon that manila file. And as I began reading those articles, I began to think, now is the time to write about this. But how to track down Lynn? How to track down a woman who I had only met once nearly 10 years ago? Well, I decided to use a little device invented by Al Gore, better known as the internet, <laughs> and a little search engine known as Google. And I managed to track down Lynn's phone number, and I completely cold-called her, and the conversation went something like this. Hi, my name is Margaret, and I met you nearly 10 years ago when you came to Sitka, Alaska, touring the state, and you stayed in my aunt's bed and breakfast, and over hot berry scones and freshly brewed coffee, we talked about sheep. Do you remember me? And she's like, no. And I'm like, awesome. But by the end of that conversation, she was gracious enough to invite myself and my husband up to her home. 
And from there, we went and spent time with a farmer in Nebraska, a beekeeper in Colorado, and finally a vintner right near here in Napa Valley, California. And with each of these individuals, I opened up the Bible and I asked, how do you read this? Not as a theologian, but in light of what you do every day. And their answers changed the way that I read the Bible forever. It became the basis for a journey that I called Scalding the Divine, my search for God in wine, wool, and wild honey. Why Scout the Divine? Because there are so many days in my own life that I go to read the Bible, and it feels like the stories are not only thousands of years, but thousands of miles away, written in a distant culture that I don't understand. As hungry as I am for God, as much as I want to connect with Him, it's like I close the book and I walk away not feeling that connection with Him or the words within. The picture that I have in my mind's eye is that of a huge panel of stained glass. And it's like over time the dust has collected and how desperately I need the Holy Spirit to come in and wipe away that dust that I may once again stand in wonder and of awe of all who he is and all that he has done. I just want to share just a couple of the treasures that I discovered in my own journey of scouting the divine. And the first came rather early. Because you see, I knew that before I ever got on a plane and went and spent time with Lynn, that I had some homework to do. And so I began going through the scripture and looking up every single place where sheep and shepherds and flocks are mentioned. And what I discovered is that sheep literally graze through the pages of the scripture. From the very beginning in Genesis, we discover that the original conflict between Cain and Abel was a conflict over an offering, one the gift of the field and the other the gift of the flock. While the scripture does not clearly say that Noah packed some sheep on the ark, I have a hunch that he did. Why? Because many of his descendants, some of Israel's greatest leaders, all took care of sheep. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, not to mention that shepherd boy king, David. Throughout the Old Testament, the prophets regularly drew on sheep and shepherding imagery in order to communicate God's heart. This continues not only throughout the Old Testament, but into the New, where at the very birth of Jesus, these shepherds were included on that short RSVP list. When that infant Jesus grows up and he enters into full-time ministry, he regularly sets the very stories and the parables that he tells using sheep and shepherding imagery. Once the church is birthed, again we are reminded that as leaders we are to care for the flock of God, all the way to the closing of Revelation where we find John on that island of Patmos and he is having those psychedelic apocalyptic visions and time and time again he talks about seeing a lamb. And with so many mentions of sheep and shepherding in the scripture, it raises the question that maybe, just maybe, I need to get to know more about these woolly creatures. And so I traveled to spend time with Lynn. And as I did, I had a familiar passage come to light in a whole new way. And it's found in John chapter 10. And for those of you who have your Bibles, let's go to John chapter 10. And for those of you who brought your iPhones, let's go there as well, because as we all know, there is an app for that. And in John chapter 9, we have the Pharisees looking and going, are we not getting it? Are we spiritually blind? And Jesus says, yippers. And what he does is in order to explain to them what they're not seeing, he draws on shepherding imagery. And in John chapter 10, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. And a stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers." Shortly after I arrived on the farm with Lynn, she led me up a muddy path. And as we walked, she would carefully open and close every single gate behind us, double-checking in order to make sure they were secure. 
When we finally reached the top of the path, we looked out across this wide expanse, and there were these sheep that looked like cotton balls that dotted the landscape. And as we're standing there looking at them, Lynn suddenly looks at me and she starts whispering. And I looked at Lynn and I go, why are we whispering? And she says, because at the very first sound of my voice, they will all come running. And with that, she simply said, sheep, sheep, sheep. And the entire flock bolted toward her. And in that moment, I recognized that John chapter 10 is not just a metaphor. It is not just a word picture. It is the way that sheep are created. You see, a sheep is wired, it is designed, it is created to respond to the voice of its shepherd. Just as you and I are wired and we are designed and we are created to respond to the voice of God in our lives. As leaders, are there things that we can do to make it more difficult to hear from God? Absolutely. We can choose to run to the far edge of the field. We can choose to try to poke our neck through the mesh gate. We can choose to try to bury our head in the grass. But if you and I are actively seeking God's voice in our life and for those we lead, as the good shepherd, he is faithful to make sure that we do not miss a single word. But it's not just that you and I are designed to hear God's voice. Because you see, I followed Lynn back down that muddy trail. And as we were walking and talking, she just began to introduce me to her flock. And she was like, this one over here is Opal. And she had a little bit of a difficult pregnancy. So she's a bit of an over-possessive mom. And when she makes a bleat, it almost has like a raspy tone to it. And I was like, really? I had no idea. And she's like, and this one over here is Iris. And you have to keep an eye on her because if you ever leave a gate open, she is the first one who is going to try to escape. But on a warm and sunny day, she is also the first one to come and lay down on my lap. And this one over here, that one's Maggie. And she is a grandmother of sheep. The Shetlands in this area usually only live to 11 or 12 years old and she's already 13. And when she gets mad, she stomps her foot. But make no mistake, she is loving and kind. And as the shepherdess is describing her flock, I am thinking about the ways God describes you and I. How much more he knows us like Psalm 139. How he knows our strengths and our weaknesses. He knows our personalities, our quirks, and he loves us just as we are. And as we're walking and talking, we start to enter the barn area, and she just starts going about her daily chores, and she's replenishing the water, and she's adding to the grain, and she's stacking back up the hay. And as she's doing this, the flock has completely gathered behind her. All eyes are on the shepherdess, and she starts talking to them. And she goes, Maggie, hold on just a moment. I'm going to get you your medicine. And Iris, you wait right there. You're going to get your grain. Just be patient. And what I realized in that moment is that the shepherdess could recognize recognize the voice of her sheep without ever turning around. You see, it's not just that as sheep we are wired and created to hear God's voice, but that God hears ours. Are there times in life and in ministry when we doubt? In the deep words of the philosopher Sarah Palin, you betcha. We all have those days when we look at God and we go, God, did you not hear? Did you not hear when we prayed? Not just me, but my family and my entire church congregation. Did you not hear when we fasted? Did you not see us? Where are you, God? And though we may be tempted to believe that God did not hear, my time with the shepherdess reminded me that he hears every word. He hears every groan, every ache. There is not a syllable that goes by without his notice. Indeed, our God is the good shepherd. The second stop in my journey for scouting the divine was to go and spend time with a farmer in Nebraska. Why spend time with a farmer? 
Well, primarily because the entire Old and New Testament are written in an agrarian context. And so when God uses the images of harvest and of plowing, of preparing the seed and the soil in order to communicate to his people, he was talking very specifically to them in the world they lived in. In ancient culture, they could not go to the local Whole Foods or Costco to stock up on their vegetables. They had to plant them and wait for harvest, and if nothing grew, they were not able to feed their children. And so when God used these images, it would be like God talking about our paychecks, our pensions, our 401k, the very way that we're going to try to pay our kids student loan debt back for college. I mean, you were talking about God speaking very specifically into people's lives. And so I went to spend time with my friend Joe and his uncle Aaron on their farm. And shortly after I got there, Joe invited me to drive the tractor. Now, this was not the kind of tractor that you can rent at Home Depot for the day. This was one of the huge John Deere tractors, the 4000 series, where the tires are bigger than I am and it's like they have racing straps. And so I get behind the wheel and I quickly discover that my feet cannot reach the pedals because I am too short. So Joe jumps back there with me and we start cruising around the farm and we're talking about the scripture. And as we're talking, I suddenly realize that I am hungry. And I look around, and I am literally in the midst of thousands of acres of corn. And so I said, Joe, I am going to go get a snack. And he says, where? And I said, in the field. And he says, Margaret, I really don't think that you want to do that. And I was like, what do you mean? I've eaten raw corn before. And so I climb out of the cabin of the tractor. I go down, I find one ear of corn, I rip it off, I peel it back, and I bite in. And it tastes like the bottom of my shoe. And you did not warn me, did you? Because what I discovered that day is that there are two types of corn. There is feed corn, the corn that you feed cows, and then there is sweet corn, the corn that we all buy at the local grocery store. So we continue playing on the farm, and that evening we went to Uncle Aaron's house. We sat across from his large kitchen table with his kids gathered around, and we open up the Bible, and we're talking about the parables of Jesus and the presence of these agrarian themes throughout the Bible. And as we're talking and discussing, I only have one image in my mind, and that is of driving down the road at 65 miles an hour on the highway in Nebraska, and there's corn in all directions. And when you are driving at those speeds, it's like the rows of corn which are perfectly aligned flicker by like an old black and white movie. And as I thought about that, I looked at Aaron and I said, I just have to ask you, is it hard to keep all of those rows of corn straight? And he says, it's really hard. And I said, well, what makes it so challenging? He says, well, do you remember when you were driving that tractor today? And I said, yeah. He says, well, when you're behind the wheel, if you have the slightest little bump or the slightest little nudge when you're driving, you'll get something called a bend in your rows. And I said, well, what's wrong with that? And he says, well, when you get a bend in your rows, it leads to a whole lot of inefficiency in the farmland. Because now there's a place in your very valuable and finite land in which no seeds were planted. And then when you go to correct that bend in your row and you plant that next row, you have two rows that are too close. And now they're competing for sunlight and water and the nutrition in the soil. And so bends in your rows lead to a whole lot of inefficiency. And as Aaron is describing this, I'm thinking of Luke chapter 9, verse 62, where Jesus says, no one who has put his hand to the plow and turns back is fit for the kingdom of God. And I realized that in the same way, I had seen that as referring back to the story of Lot and his wife looking back, it also had correlations to farming. And the image that when we look back, it is very hard not to get bends in our spiritual rows. So I looked at Aaron and I said, Aaron, okay, I'm tracking, but, but when I drove down the road, all of those rows look straight. How do you keep your rows straight when you're planting the corn? And he said, Margaret, when I'm up there in that tractor, I look in the distance and I find a tree or a house or a rock, and I fix my eyes on that. And when I fix my eyes on that marker, there are no bends in my rows. And when he described that, I could not help but think of Hebrews chapter 12, 
When Paul writes, therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of faith. How easy is it to get distracted, to look to the right, to the left, to look at the person across town or right next door who has a larger building, who has a bigger budget, who has more butts in seats. Excuse my Christian French. The person who has published more books, has a larger platform, or has more followers on Twitter, though I doubt anybody cares about the last one. But in the process of finding these distractions, we get turned off course ever so slightly but significantly from what God has for us. And in that place as leaders, God says, fix your eyes on me, the author and the perfecter of faith. The third stop in my journey of scouting the divine was to go and spend time with a beekeeper in southern Colorado. Now, some of you may be thinking, Margaret, totally tracking with the sheep, and I got it with the farm, but what is the buzz about all of the bees? Well, if you begin looking up bees and honey and honeycomb within the scripture, you will find nearly 70 references. And nearly 20 of those all refer to the same thing, namely a promised land being a land overflowing with milk and honey. And the very first place that this appears in the scripture is found in Exodus 3. For those of you who have your Bibles, most of you are familiar that Exodus 3 is a significant portion of scripture because this is where Moses receives his marching orders from God. This is when he has that profound encounter with the burning bush and God says, I'm going to use you in order to set my people free from the slavery that they've been under in Egypt. But God in his grace does not just tell Moses where he's going to take his people from, but he also tells him where he's going to take his people to. And in Exodus chapter 3, verse 8, it says, So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from that land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, this description right here becomes the defining characteristic of the promised land, which to me is a little bit odd. Because if you flip forward to Numbers 13 and you reach the point in Scripture where Moses is about to send these spies into the promised land, he gives them lots of instructions and he asks lots of questions. He's almost like a great real estate agent. Like he wants to know the size of the land. He wants to know how big the houses are, the number of bedrooms, number of bathrooms. He wants to know it all. And he says, when you come back from that land, we want you to bring some samples, some of the produce. And so in Numbers 13, when the spies come back, back, we know that there are those two guys, and they have that large pole between them, and they have this huge gargantuan cluster of grapes, and they have like these state fair prize-winning pomegranates, and they have these sweet Whole Foods-approved dates, and they, they come back, and they're looking at all of the produce, and what's fascinating is there is not a drop of honey or a drop of milk between any of them. And so I'm thinking, well, if they didn't come back with any, like, why is this the land that is described as overflowing with milk and honey? So I decided to go and spend time with a veteran beekeeper in southern Colorado. This was a man who had been taking care of hives for more than 40 years. He knew a bee's hive inside and out. He had also been surviving colony collapse disorder. How many of you have ever heard of or are familiar with colony collapse disorder? Basically, it is the dying off of bees, not only within our nation, but in nations around the world. Now, for those of you who are deadly allergic to bees, you are probably thinking, whoop, whoop, and I would so be with you, except that we need bees in order to pollinate some of our basic food supplies. So for instance, without bees, we don't get almonds, which is really important here in California. Without bees, there are a lot of berries and squash that we can't enjoy. Without bees, you can say adios to the guacamole at your favorite Mexican restaurant. That one hurts. And so three years before I had met Gary, he had had almost half of his hives die in a single winter. 
The following year, he had lost another third of them. And he was just in the process of rebuilding. And so as I sat down with him, I opened up Exodus chapter 3, and I said, Gary, like, why, from your perspective, of all the defining characteristics, is the promised land described as a land overflowing with milk and honey? And he says, Margaret, in order to understand that, you need to know something about the inner workings of a beehive. And so I would like for all of you to turn on the discovery channel of your brains. Don't go to the Food Network. That's a bit far. Paula Dean is later. And in a modern beehive, one of the white wooden frames that you see when you are driving down the road, there are somewhere between 50 and 75,000 bees. The most famous of all of these bees is the queen bee. And she is not called the queen because she rules over all of the other bees. She is called the queen because she has babies all day, every day. Owie. Shortly after she is born, she goes on her maiden voyage in which she is impregnated by the boy bees or the drones of the hive. Afterwards, she comes back to the hive and she begins laying eggs all day, every day. At the very height of the season, she will lay up to 3,000 eggs in a single day, greater than her actual body weight. Meanwhile, the boy bees of the hive have all served their purpose, and so they are booted from the hive. No spiritual parallels there. <laughs> but there are still tens of thousands of other bees. For instance, there are the queen attendant bees, and these are the bees who take care of the queen. There are also the nurse bees, and these are the bees who help with the larva. And then there are the hunter-gatherer bees, the bees who go far and wide, and they bring back the pollen, and they bring back the nectar. And if you look at an image of the bee, you'll find that they're designed with these little catchers on their haunches so that they can pack the pollen so that they can bring it back to the hive. There are also water-gathering bees. Now, I don't know about you, but I have never seen a bee fly around with a five-gallon bucket. And so a bee, to go gather water, goes out, finds a water source, drinks it in, comes back to the hive, and goes, blah, blah, and they hope that the five-second rule doesn't apply. <laughs> and then you have the fanning bees, who on the hot days will stand in front of that little pool of water and will flap their wings, and in the process, create a natural air conditioning system and on extremely cold days will stand not in front of the water, but merely within the hive and flap their wings and create a natural heating system. And as Gary is describing this, I am thinking, how awesome is our God? But two of the other hives that just cap or bees that captured my imagination were the soldier bees. And these are like your Charlie Angels types. And they hang outside of the hive. And their whole purpose is to protect the hive from any intruders that would want to steal the golden honey treasure within. And then there are the mortuary bees. And I kind of imagine these guys like with like junior birdman little capes and a little black hat. And their sole purpose is to remove any death and disease from the beehive. And as Gary is describing this, I am immediately seeing parallels to the body of Christ. How would you and I as leaders encourage and strengthen every single member of our church in order to fulfill their proper role and function, just like in a beehive, how we flavor the world with the goodness of Jesus Christ. But as Gary is talking, I'm saying this is awesome and fascinating, but what does this have to do with Exodus chapter 3? So turn off the Discovery Channel for a moment. Because Gary says, well, for a land to overflow with milk and honey, it means that all of the bees, those tens of thousands of bees in every single hive within that land, are all working within their proper order and function. But it's not just the bees within that hive, it's actually across the land. You see, because for a hive to overflow with honey, it means that the winter snows did not come too late, nor did they come too early. 
It means that in the summer heat, the sun did not beat down so strong that all of the vegetation wilted. It meant that in the summer rains, they didn't come down so heavy that all of the vegetation drowned, nor so light that it could not bloom and blossom. But that in a land overflowing with milk and honey, everything is working within its proper order. And when he said that, something shifted in my heart. Because so often I had gotten tripped up on the word overflowing. I thought that if God wanted to bring me to the promised land, that meant that he wanted to bring me to a land that was overflowing with milk and honey. And Gary said, Margaret, no. The overflowing is merely a byproduct for things working in their proper order. And when things are working in the proper order, the way God has designed, we find ourselves living in joy and gratitude that we would not have otherwise, no matter what season of life we are in. That if we are in a season of singleness, we are grateful for this opportunity to pursue Jesus with wholehearted abandon. That if we are in a season of marriage, that we look in the eyes of the one that God has entrusted to us and are grateful for the privilege of serving and honoring them. That if we are in a season of raising children that we look in their eyes and we are so grateful for the opportunity to raise them up in the ways of the Lord. That if we are in a season of empty nesting, that we are grateful for this too opportunity to serve God. You see, God calls us to live in a promised land as leaders where things are working in their proper order before him. The final place that I wanted to lead you in my journey of scouting the divine was to go and spend time with a vintner in Napa Valley. I would imagine very few of you are wondering why go to Napa Valley, and many of you may be wondering why didn't you take me there with you? But if you go through the scripture, you will find nearly 300 references to vines and wines and vineyards throughout the scripture. In Genesis, we read that shortly after Noah got off of the ark, he fell off of the wagon. He planted a vineyard and he drank too much. Throughout the Old Testament, we find many of Israel's leaders either planting vineyards or caring for those who did, including Solomon, his wife, David, Uzziah, and many, many more. Now, this is intriguing because it's also very clear in the scripture that drunkenness is forbidden, not just because if you drink too much, you may wake up with a ton of George Foreman grills after spending too much time on eBay but because it can lead to foolishness and a lot of unholy behavior. And yet despite that, throughout the Old Testament, the prophets regularly draw on vine and vineyard imagery in order to communicate God's heart to his people, which is kind of intriguing. Because you see, today, modern archeologists have discovered that in the ancient plots of land of the Israelites, there were often rows of vines planted. So when God was speaking through the prophets, through the image of vines and vineyards, he was speaking out of the very vegetation that grew in their backyards. It would be like God speaking to us today about our tomato plants or the grasses that we use in our own lawns. This continues throughout the Old Testament and into the New, where Jesus almost seems to go out of his way to make the setting of the parables and the stories that he taught in the place and in the location of vineyards. But I think that of all of the places where vines are most significant, I think the passage's got to be John chapter 15. This is that amazing portion of scripture where Jesus just comes right out and says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit, he prunes it that it may bear more fruit. You are already clear because of the word which I have spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Growing up in the church, I heard many sermons on this passage. And the one that kind of always caught my attention and made me just a little bit kind of afraid was the ones on pruning. That idea from John 15 that at times God is going to cut us back. 
The spring before last, I went and I spent some time with the Lord, and I was just praying and saying, God, what do you have for me right now? Where are you leading us in this next year? And I would encourage, if you guys have not taken time already in 2010 to do that, make some time to pull apart and away with the Lord and say, God, where are you leading? What do you have for us? And so I'm in this time, and as I'm praying, I sense the Holy Spirit say to me, I am going to prune you. And I'm like, rut row. Um, could I get plan B? the rollover minutes from last year, like, I'll work with you. Because when I think about pruning, it's not something that I want to sign up for. Is anybody here is super excited about pruning? I mean, if I am really honest with you all, when it comes to the image of pruning that I really have in my mind, it kind of looks something like this. Some of you are thinking high school slasher movie. No. <laughs> No, the picture that I have, though, is like if I am a vine and I am growing up before the Lord and he says, I'm going to prune you, then he's going to come in, he's going to look and he's going to go, that's dead. And there's an area of sin and I don't even know where that came from. We might as well get rid of that. And I never said you should do that. And what are you thinking? And let me just get rid And we're just going to cut and cut and prune and prune until I am nothing more than this little stubby thing on the ground. And maybe, just maybe then, God can do something good through me. And my friend Christoph, who takes care of four different boutique wineries in Napa Valley, looks at me and he goes, Margaret, that is not how we prune vines in Napa Valley. <laughs> and he says, when we want to prune vines, we use something like this. And I'm thinking, wow, cuticle clippers. And he begins to describe how three to four times during the growing season, he will walk out to his vines and he will handle every single cluster of grapes. And he'll go through and he'll cut back just a leaf and just a branch so that every single grape will receive the right amount of aeration and sunlight, not only for maximum fruitfulness, but for maximum distinctive flavor. And when he described that, I began to say, God, have your way with me. If you choose to prune me, the ministry you've entrusted with me, the church that you have us serving at, have your way because you are the master vintner. But in that passage in John 15, it's not just the image of pruning. There's a second image, and that is the image of abiding in him. And growing up in the church, when you talk about abiding, I always thought that kind of just meant like stay connected to Jesus. If you stay plugged into him, it will all be okay. You know, where the little grape attaches to the branch and the branches of the vine, as long as we're connected, it's going to be okay. And while I think there is truth in that, after spending time in Napa Valley, my understanding got deepened. Because what I didn't realize is that if you want to grow really great grapes, then you don't plant grapevines with seeds. You actually plant them with shoots. And so somebody who wants to grow grapevines in Napa Valley will go and they'll prepare the soil, and then they'll go through and they'll plant these shoots. And the first year, they'll start to grow up. And then the vintner will go back and he'll cut them back. And the second year, they'll grow up a little bit taller and they'll start to get a little wild and he'll go through at the end of the year and he'll cut them back. The third year, they will grow up and they'll start to produce some grapes and things are really looking good. But if you want to grow great grapes, you don't take that harvest. You cut it back. And it's not until the fourth year in Napa Valley that those vines will grow up high enough and full enough that the vintner will take his very first harvest. Then he will take it back, he will process it, and it will not be until year seven that he gets to taste the very first flavors of the fruit of his labor. And if you are an investor in Napa Valley, it is not until year 16, 18, or 20 that you will even reach a break-even point. But once you have made that investment, that vineyard will continue to produce grapes for 30, 40, 50, 60 years from now. And as Christoph is describing this, suddenly I'm getting a new understanding of what it means to answer the invitation to abide in him. 
There are times that I look at God and I go, God, why am I not more fruitful right now? God, what are you doing? Why is nothing happening? And God is looking at me and he is saying, Margaret, because the harvest that I want to bring forth in you, the harvest that is going to bring an amazing amount of glory to my son isn't for another 25 or 30 or 35 years. But if you will remain faithful in me and abide in me, I as the master vintner and faithful to bring it about in you. But it's not just as how the vines grow up and the harvests take place. It's also in the very soil in which the vines are planted. Because I always thought that if I wanted to grow really great grapes, then I should go down to True Value, where I registered for my wedding, and I should get one of those huge bags of like miracle grow type soil and, and plant the vines in that. And Christoph again corrected me and said, Margaret, that is the last thing we use. When we want to grow really great grapes, the one with the distinctive flavor and the character, we use rocky, difficult soil. In fact, there is a vineyard over in France called Chateau Lafitte in which they grow their vines in 75% gravel. And there are days that the vintner will go out and he'll look down and he'll say, it is not rocky enough. And he will actually plant more rocks in the gravel and soil surrounding those vines. And when Christoph said that, I began to look at my own life. In those times when I cry out to God and I say, God, I have this rock, I have this difficult area in my life, and I have begged and I have cried out to you to make it move. I have emptied my bag of charismatic, Pentecostal, non-denominational tricks, and it is not budging. God, why is it here? It's like God looks at me and he says, because it is that very difficult place through which I will develop the character and the distinctive flavor of my son in you. And I say, Lord, have your way with me. Be the master vintner of my life. Why does God reveal himself in so many metaphors? I think one of the reasons is simply that there is not a single metaphor that can contain our awesome, amazing, majestic, all-powerful, wise God. But I think the second reason that God reveals himself in so many metaphors is that there are times in my own life that I need to know God in each of these ways. There are times that I need to know God as the good shepherd. I need to know that he is the one who goes before me, who leads me, who has designed me and created me to know his voice and hears mine. There are days that I need to be reminded, Margaret, don't get distracted. Keep your eyes on me. I am the marker. I am the standard in the distance. Like that farmer. And that he's the one that I need to pursue with abandon. There are times in life and in ministry where I honestly feel like I am doing nothing more than just flapping my wings. And God says, but remain faithful. I am doing more through my body than you can ever imagine. And there are other days that I need to be reminded that he is the master vintner. And if I will choose to abide in him and submit myself to his pruning, then he will bring about a harvest that is beyond my wildest imagination. So my hope and my prayer for you as leaders is that as you spend time in scripture, as you spend time scouting the divine, not only on behalf of your own journey with God, but also on behalf of those who you pastor and care for and pour yourself into, that as you spend time within this book, that you will once again find its stories coming alive like a pop-up book that the Holy Spirit will flood your life and wipe away any dust that you may once again stand in wonder and awe of our God and all who he is and all who he wants to do through you, your church, and your communities. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and we praise you that you are God and you are on that throne, that you are sovereign 
and that you make yourself so real to us that you reach down into the earth, the dirt of our world, to reveal facets of your character and your nature. Heavenly Father, stir up the hunger in our own hearts to know you, to love you, to seek you, and to pursue you with abandon. We thank you and we praise you for being our God. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again to Margaret Feinberg. And as we always try to do here on the Thrive Leadership Podcast, take a second on the treadmill, on your mower, bike, in the shower, skates, on the plane, wherever it may be, on the train, train, in the automobile, wherever you might find yourself right. as you listen in. Take a moment. What's the one thing that you can take away from mm -hmm. this talk? What's God speaking to you? What's he saying? What's the Holy Spirit convicting you of, challenging you around, inspiring you towards Take that and uh, do something with it. Because again, we want to see practical leadership come out of this. By the way, did you know that Margaret travels with a, speaking of planes, she has a dog. I do. That she takes ah, everywhere with her. This is the cutest dog ever. It's like a little One toto. pound. Yeah, what's his name? Hershey. Hershey, that's it. Yep, the oh, old still track, never forgets man, anything. that's impressive. Yeah, Hershey is the dog that travels with Margaret. That thing pops out of like bags yeah. and pockets. She had like a bag or purse kind of thing and yeah. Hershey's head popped out. The old Hershey just old pops Hershey. right out of that dog's He's there impressive. all the time. You know, we ought to do an interview with Hershey. I just want to understand the temperament because I think leaders have a lot to learn from Hershey. There's a lesson there. Yes. We should all have a Loyal. Hershey in our life. Yeah. That's the lesson I'm taking That's away. so is true. We all need a Hershey. We all need a Hershey. And what's funny about Margaret <laughs> as well is that her husband, Leif, He's a big, tall, uh, what do you call those guys from the Nordic States? A Nordsman? But, but Leif <laughs> right. is like 6'9". Beautiful two, human 295. Being, and Margaret's, you know, 4'8". And then you got Hershey, who's one pound. Right. So they are the classic case of a family that is so out of whack in right. terms of size and structure <laughs> and scheming. And yet so perfect. Yes. Yet yeah. so complete as this podcast is at this point. That's right. You know, Thrive Leadership, thriveconference.org. We've got lots of conferences coming up. Absolutely. There's all kinds of resources and info in there too. So if you're going, I love this podcast and I want to dig deeper right now, you've got Thrive Now there. There's a ton of articles and videos and all kinds of great things podcast at thriveconference.org. If you want to send us an email, especially CJ, he loves to get multiple emails in his inbox yes. that fill it up with useless information. I'm so sitting around right now just looking at the He's waiting inbox. for an email from you. I'm so, hoping. you know, airplane74 at comcast.net. Go ahead and send that email to CJ <laughs> about what you're doing right now because we right. know you're not doing anything. Right. Looking forward to upcoming podcast episodes. We got some big people coming up. Yes. Not because they're large, but because they're influential. That's right. Guys so, who've got incredible insights. Stick with, with us. us. We're taking yeah. you places. Yeah. We're glad you're on this journey with us. And as we sign off, I want to leave the last sign off to you, CJ. To me. Brad, I feel like we really need to work on our sign-off. We really do. I feel like if we're going to be taken serious here, we've got to have like one of those signature sign-off. Like, I'm trying to think of some real famous ones, like, um, good night, good luck. Well, I've got one for okay, you. Okay, go for it. So long, farewell, it's time to say goodbye. You sing it? Yeah. That's amazing. Can we stick with that one for I now? I mean, we can stick with that, and then we can have folks maybe vote. I like this. Here, I got one for you. Go ahead. It's not goodbye. Just so long till next time. Mm, that is a classic Christian phrase. Let me give you one more. Because we're talking about eternity there. It's not deeply. goodbye. Just so long till next time. We're sticking with that one. I Say mean, it one more time in your, in your radio voice. <clears throat> it's not goodbye. Just so long till next time. As we sign off, you're hearing from CJ. Thanks for listening in. I'm Brad Lominick. This is the Thrive Leadership Podcast. This has been the Thrive Leadership Podcast. To download, re-listen to, and share this episode, go to thriveconference.org.